which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. She makes the argument that what you're called, what you call yourself or what someone else calls you, it does not define your character. It doesn't determine who you are. And so she extends the argument, surely your name shouldn't determine your fate, shouldn't shape your future. In her case, she was really hoping that their names wouldn't keep them apart because she'd fallen in love with Romeo, who was from a family that was at odds with her own. In an ideal world, her argument would be absolutely true. And in her case, though their names may not have defined their character, who they were, essentially, they certainly ended up affecting their future, which, unfortunately, ended up being quite short. In today's world, our names certainly shape, at least to some extent, our sense of identity, and they definitely can affect our future, our fate. I mean, Tracy Beadle, for example, is a much easier name to bear in today's culture than, say, Jamal or Hussein. In the Bible, names are steeped in meaning. They don't necessarily dictate a person's character, but oftentimes they do reveal something essential about a person's character. Jacob, for example, means grabber. It means trickster or overreacher, supplanter. I'm sure you all remember the story. Jacob was one of a pair of twins that were born to Isaac and Rebekah. And as he was exiting his mother's womb following Esau, he was gripping Esau's heel. Maybe trying to get out first, maybe not. Either way, he lived with the name for the rest of his life. Jacob spent the better part of his life working the system. He spent the better part of his life scamming in an attempt, oftentimes very successful attempts, to grab blessings. And there were consequences. There were a lot of consequences to his actions. In his most infamous scam, he scammed his brother out of his birthright. I'm sure you remember that. He couldn't beat his brother out of the womb, but he wasn't going to let a little thing like that stop him from claiming his birthright and his blessing. And he did that by claiming another name. Remember he pretended to be Esau and won both the blessing and the birthright. Esau was incensed, of course. He wanted to absolutely kill Jacob, so Jacob ran. He fled to Haran, where he spent the next 20 years living with another trickster, one who oftentimes bested him, his uncle Laban. Well, the two of them traded scams for two decades until finally, after one scam too many, his uncle's favor turned on him, and God told Jacob, he said, just go home. It's time. Well, given the fact that he was absolutely sure to meet his brother Esau along the way, Jacob was scared. I mean, at long last, he was going to have to face the person that he'd been and confront the person he had so deeply betrayed. He was terrified. I think we've all had some sense in our lives of what that can be like. A day of reckoning. A time when we've had to face someone or something 
that we've avoided for a long time? Maybe a person from a relationship that was broken? A checkbook with a negative balance? A doctor's diagnosis, maybe, related to some poor choices on our part? A failing grade on a final exam? Our past do have a tendency to catch up with us. So Jacob was scared to death, and he begins damage control. As he nears Edom, the land where Esau lives, he begins to send envoys ahead of him to greet Esau, to let him know that Jacob is on his way back home, and to offer Esau a portion of his wealth. I mean, Jacob is not stupid. He's hoping to appease his brother a little bit. Turns out that Esau is already aware that he's on his way, and he's coming to meet him, along with about 400 soldiers. Well, that doesn't bode very well. So he divides his entourage into two groups, and he sends one ahead, keeping his wives and children and his most valued possessions with him. I mean, that's the one thing you can say about a day of reckoning, right? It really clarifies for us what's important, what really matters to us. His hope is that even if that first group is destroyed, maybe the second will escape and survive. Jacob has never felt so vulnerable. So afraid. His past has caught up with him. The stakes couldn't be any higher. He could lose his wealth. He could lose all those he loves. He could lose his own life. Everything that he spent his entire life grabbing for. So in that moment, he does what we all do, right? When all else fails, when we are in a moment of deep crisis, he prays. He's run out of tricks. When we've made a hot mess out of our lives, when we have come to the end of ourselves, to the end of our resources, we have a tendency to pray. I went back and I read the whole Jacob saga, just to be sure. And this is the first time in Scripture that it says that Jacob prays. It's not the first time he's encountered God. I mean, God has pursued Jacob his entire life, and Jacob has actually noticed and celebrated many of these occasions, but this is the first time Scripture notes that he actually takes the initiative, that Jacob turns and seeks God. Everything had to fall apart, but finally, Jacob is on his knees. Please deliver me, God. You told me, you said that you would be with me and that you would do good in my life. Finally, Jacob claims the promises that God has offered him his whole life. And after a long day of very strategic and desperate diplomatic attempts, Jacob, though he must have been extremely exhausted, he couldn't sleep. So he gets up in the middle of the night, in the dark, and he moves his family, along with all of his stuff, to the other side of the Jabbok which is an eastern tributary of the Jordan River, and he spends the night on the opposite side of the river, all alone. 
or so he thought. In the middle of the night, a mysterious being, described as a man, grabs a hold of Jacob, and they begin to wrestle. Clamped in this struggle, they wrestle all night long, until finally, as the sun threatens to rise, his attacker, who's been unable to gain the upper hand, strikes Jacob on his hip joint and knocks it out, and knocks it out of joint. And still, though, even though Jacob is greatly weakened, and I imagine in excruciating pain, he will not let go. I won't let you go until you bless me, Jacob says. What's your name? I imagine the name exploding on a breath of desperate surrender, kind of like crying uncle or making a confession. Jacob. My name's Jacob. I'm the grabber. I'm the trickster. I take things that aren't mine. That's what's landed me in this mess. Exhausted. Tired of running. Tired of scamming. He fully owns his past, and he claims who he's been. In a moment of exhausted vulnerability, he confronts himself and his past. It's not an easy thing to do. Not for any of us. So many times the crisis that we find ourselves in is one of our own making. We find ourselves in poor health because of choices that we've made. Maybe we don't eat the right foods or we don't exercise, or we smoked for a long time, or drank too much alcohol. We're broke, because we've lived way beyond our means for way too long, thinking we just had to have this or that luxury. Our relationships are strained because we haven't been intentional about nurturing them. We've taken advantage of those we love, or we've taken them for granted. We just flat out didn't study for that test. We've held on to or grabbed for things that were never meant to be ours, and now it's cost us. One of the hardest things to do, at least for me, is to admit that we are the problem. We're the ones that dug this hole. But the first step in fixing any problem is to admit that you have one. The first step in becoming who it is we want to be, who God created us to be, is to admit who we've been. Jacob is exhausted. Ever since he claimed his brother's identity, he has been running, hiding from his past, even as his past has continued to perpetuate itself in his ongoing scams. And now he's caught. And in order to live into the future that God promises, he has to face his past. It's an epic struggle. It is so painful he's left crippled. After a very long night of relentless 
and tiresome wrestling, Jacob faces the truth about himself and he confesses to God. I'm Jacob. I grab things. I've grabbed and tricked and scammed my whole life. I'm the grabber. But here's the thing. No matter what is in our past, once you turn and surrender to God's embrace, if you can remain there, even when the pain seems unbearable, the blessing will come. Jacob's confession is barely out of his mouth, and God blesses him with a new name, reveals to him his true identity, and gifts him with a redeemed future. Your name is no longer Jacob. You are Israel. You have wrestled with God and with humans, and you've prevailed. Jacob has wrestled with humans his whole life. Even in the womb, Scripture says, he was wrestling with Esau. Wrestled with humans, wrested away their blessings, their possessions, claimed them for his own. He's wrestled with himself, who he was and who he would become, until finally when it all catches up with him, he turns and for the very first time he wrestles all night long with the one who made him with the only one who can reveal who he truly is and to what purpose he's called. Once he fully and relentlessly engages God, once he's firmly held in God's embrace, he claims the blessing that he's been chasing his entire life. God's blessing. What is a name? What is in a name? Locked in the embrace of the one who creates us and who redeems us, we find out. Locked in God's embrace, we find out who we are, we find out whose we are, and we find out to what purpose we are. And that's a huge blessing. Amen.